You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Happy Halloween, everyone. It is uh, the, We are recording this on the Friday before Halloween, and this is going to be our Halloween spooktacular podcast. And I couldn't think of anyone better to share the uh, the spooktacular hosting duties with me than w- the one and only Richard Gleaves. The uh, the author and the creator of the Jason verse, and uh, if you know if you listen to the show, you have heard audiobook clips uh, from Richard's uh, Jason verse series, starting with Rise, Headless and Ride, and then Bridget Bones, General of the Dead, and then starting the second trilogy, Book Four, Salem Blood to Drink, and uh, there's more coming. And if you are a Subscriber to Richard's Patreon, you know all about that, and you have the inside scoop there. But Richard's going to fill us in on what's going on with Jason Crane and all of his buddies. Welcome back to the show, Richard. Thanks, Hank. It's uh, it's good to be back, and uh, I'm it, I'm glad to see the podcast has grown and grown and grown, and it's really become a great thing for you. Absolutely, it's uh you know we are we're in our eighth year now. If you can believe that, it's uh it still kind of surprises me when I think about it. I was episode nineteen. <laughs> you have you have serious bragging rights, don't you? Sanction. Uh, <laughs> and now uh, this is our second uh, Halloween episode. I think we need to get some spooky music in here. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> for sure do you, uh are you a are, are you a spotify user or or apple music do you participate in any of the subscription music services no i'm i'm uh i guess i'm an old fart <laughs> <laughs> we i was just thinking we need to come up with a, a playlist that we could share with people that uh you know as they're listening to uh to to any of the jason books so some some mood music to go with it that would be fun my favorite halloween song is is uh, from the old Disney cartoon, Huey, Dewey, and Louie singing trick-or-treat, trick-or-treat, trick-or-treat. <laughs> it gets me in the mood every year. I hear you. Well, well speaking of, of getting in the mood, let, let's recap for folks that may, uh, may not have been around for episode 19. And um, w- what is it about Halloween and, and this time of year in particular that, that means so much to you? Well, you think about being a kid. There's a there's a special time, I don't know, maybe between five and thirteen, maybe up to your teenage years, when Halloween is an extraordinary thing. Because I mean, we don't know at that age how it all started, but somehow the adults let us dress up like we're all actors suddenly, and we're all spooky, and we get to pretend to be all the things that scare us, and uh, and we get candy. You know, <laughs> it's an extraordinary time of childhood. And as an adult, uh, I found that I had lost it. Uh, Every year, October 31st came around, and I was doing nothing. And I was like, I'm not even watching Friday the 13th anymore. I mean, I'm not doing anything. And uh, so I was uh, in my 40s, and I was living in New York, and I said, this year, I am going to get myself in gear and go up to Sleepy Hollow, New York, and just immerse myself in that Halloween mood. Because Halloween really kind of started up there. Um, Yeah. You know, the Dutch and their pumpkins and the New England autumn spooky mood and stuff. And I fell back in love with Halloween in a way that I never dreamed I would. And uh, it's been seven years now of Halloween madness, but I still love it. <laughs> I still love it. It is it is a way to rekindle 
that that childhood dancing in the street in a tattered sheet kind of mood. It's yeah. It's, well, you you bring up a great point, Richard. That uh, that Halloween uh, sort of uh, it came from Sleepy Hollow. It, it it seemed to emerge there, and we know that you know anyone who's done any uh, armchair scholarship on on Halloween, you know there are links back to to the Celts and and uh, a, a holiday called Samhain, and you know the, you you can make all sorts of t- uh, tentative connections to that. But Halloween, as we know it now, is is very much an American thing, isn't it? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, it was it was you know some kind of chaos night for for everyone to let off some steam. But uh, the association with ghosts and witches. I mean, here I am. I'm living in Salem now, and there was a real fear of witches still back there in the early days of uh, America. But you get to Washington Irving. And this is about the time, 1821, where Mary Shelley is writing Frankenstein, and we we are starting to get this fascination with the Gothic, uh, the the Gothic story of the you know the vampire, the witch, the monster starts coming into us from Europe, I guess, from about this point. But here in America, we had. Uh, a man of letters, which was rare in the colonies, a, a true you know, author. And uh, Washington Irving, uh, <laughs> of course, he wrote Sleepy Hollow while he was in London. But he was writing about a particular time and place that he grew up in, late colonial America, um, when we still had a very heavy uh, Dutch uh, populous north of New York uh, after it had been New Amsterdam with all kinds of spooky beliefs from the old country and unusual habits. And, you know, they were really superstitious, the Dutch, and he loved their ghost stories. And when he created the legend of Sleepy Hollow, he injected into the culture a very specific idea of autumn ghostliness. Uh, Halloween wasn't really a thing yet. It was just kind of peeking around the corner. Uh, the legend of Sleepy Hollow is about that. You, know, you talk about candy in Halloween uh, in autumn in you know Westchester. You'd be talking about the harvest. You'd be talking about you know bringing in the best crops and filling up that cornucopia. And so you have Ichabod, who is just a, an eater, a great devourer <laughs> in front of him. And you have the the fall scenery and the, the spooky glens and then that magnificent ghost, which is actually kind of German, the headless hunter, the headless horseman of Sleepy Hollow. And once that got into the, the, the popular imagination, and then stories of, of elves and uh, little people in the mountains when you get into Rip Van Winkle. You know, that, that is something that, that grew into Edgar Allan Poe and Telltale Heart and, and all our love of spookiness. And then 20th century, you know, you say, hey, you know, it's a great thing for the candy manufacturers. <laughs> <laughs> And you get the machines going and you start spitting out the, your masks. And um, I don't think that's a bad thing uh, mm-hmm. any more than I think Christmas should be less commercial. I love lights and trees and Halloween candy and, and Reese's Pieces. But uh, <laughs> Halloween has become this, this, this carnival, too. It's a spooky carnival. And yeah. So, so speaking of our connection with the spooky, um, for 364 days of the year, um, we we avoid uh, things that make us feel uncomfortable uh, as much as we possibly can. And and then this one day a year, we allow ourselves to connect in in a in, in an interesting way with the things that scare us. And um, you know, I. When I was a kid, I was a, a very frightful kid. I was uh, I was afraid of everything. I remember uh, after watching my very first horror movie um, that some friends talked me into taking a shower and washing my hair 
um, turned backwards in the shower so that I could keep my eyes open while I <laughs> rinsed the soap out of my hair because I was so afraid someone was going to come and stab me in the shower like I'd seen in the movie. Um, but then, you know, and, and I purposefully avoided things that, that scared me. Uh, but then as I've gotten older, I I appreciate more and I connect more with stories um, that that face those those uh, those dark parts of life that we don't want to uh, think about. What is, what do you think that the role of Halloween societally is? Well, first of all, speak for yourself because I live in Salem and we do <laughs> thirty days. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the rest of the country. You guys, uh, you know, accepted. First, never ends. Um, and believe me, you know, you have to, if you're a resident, you have to stock up on because <laughs> you're not going anywhere. Um, but uh, the, I, when I think of Halloween, I, I guess I am more in love with the spooky. I've never been a big slasher movie fan or a horror fan uh, either. I mean, Psycho to me, Psycho is a year-round scare. I mean, yeah. just any time that you get involved with some lunatic or whatever. I mean, we can be in the middle of June and hear about some monster, some serial killer, some human being. Um, and I'm not a particular fan of that kind of genre of, of you know, murderous you know, creature. Um, so I don't like the final destination movies or anything, anything like that. For me, Halloween has always been about what you don't see the possibilities that the universe may offer for magic and strangeness and, you know, the bizarre old, the old gods and the, the risen pumpkin. I mean, the great pumpkin, Charlie, <laughs> but, um, you know, Halloween is more kind of metaphysical to me that, that sense of, is there magic in the world or not? And you, I don't particularly, I'm a rational guy those other days of the year, but you get to Halloween and you want that one night of pretend that you can wave your Harry Potter wand and make strange things happen. And that to me is so different from the idea of being terrified or scared. And the two going together, I mean, that starts with the slasher movies in the 70s. Um, you, know, you think about Halloween, uh, the, the film, uh, and there's a new one you know, out now, but um, Halloween, the film is about what you don't see. It's about suspense. It's, it's still a good spooky movie. But then right after, you know, they say, hey, Halloween made a lot of money. Let's do Friday the 13th and we'll have a lot of gushing blood and stuff. Um, so there's two kinds of Halloween to me. And uh, I've always loved and, and in my books, I've always emphasized the the long walk in the cemetery, the going down into the creepy tomb, the kind of Scooby Dooness of it all. Uh, I, uh, I really enjoy that. Of course, there's a lot of beheading and headless horsemen's and 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 stuff in my books. I mean, I, you know, gore is is good when you want a jump scare, but you can't have jump scares every five seconds, or else they lose their effectiveness. Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy to use cloud based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, 
and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs, all in one place, from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan, and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com well, and and one thing that we've learned um, it, about storytelling uh, is that uh, you're absolutely right. You can't just keep people's adrenaline pegged. Um, you know, if if we're talking about a movie for an hour and a half or two hours, if we're talking about a great book, um, you, you can't keep people's adrenaline pegged for two weeks. You know, as someone casually reads a novel, um, you, you need to to let them off the hook, so to speak, um, at times, and then that makes the jump scares and and those types of things more effective when you allow for that full emotional range, doesn't it? Yeah. When uh, I am not a huge fan of the sleepy hollow TV series because they started the first episode with a risen headless horseman with bandoliers of weapons, shooting off machine guns and killing cops. I mean, that was where you started. (laughs) So we just started over the top. Yeah. (laughs) For me, when I started writing the Jason books, I, I I was more interested in that kind of Ray Bradbury storytelling, that that sense of autumnal wonder. And I wanted to recapture what I loved about the legend of Sleepy Hollow itself. And um, so you, you look at the first Jason book, there's very little supernatural in it. Um, the first book... Uh, you have well uh, for readers who haven't uh, don't know anything about the series um i wanted to recreate the legend of sleepy hollow in modern day i mean that's been done before but what i wanted to do was do it as washington irving did i wanted to uh, write about the real place and so i i steeped myself in the actual sleepy hollow in westchester county and so there's a lot of, of world building of, of kind of Halloween town tourism in the first book. And the question, is there a horseman? Isn't there a horseman? Only gets answered at the end when he rises in spectacular fashion and we have our first chase and we're off to the races. And then that gives you somewhere to go. You've established characters first before you've established the dilemma the monster, the creature. Uh, I, I mean, we don't care about any of those kids. And Friday the 13th, I mean, we barely meet them. They're barely right. you know, out. It's all about, you know, what has the prosthetic uh, company got in store for us? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, having somewhere to go um, is a wonderful thing for uh, for an author, especially if you're going to write a series. Because then... In the second book, you can heighten the stakes, you can start having the murders, you can start having the the disasters and things and the near misses, uh, but you do it with established characters that you care about. And so the Headless Horseman, the Demon, the Witch, the Monster, they are catalysts in your story, not the whole point of it. And I think that's the difference. You're still writing a drama. Um, as I see it, you're still writing character sketches of a psychopath. You're still writing the relationships of of kids um, of a certain age who have to negotiate the world, uh, coming of age stories. You're still writing everything that you would write in a you know a, a normal novel with no no ghosts. But you're uh, you're adding on the layers of mood of spooky. And uh, then you have uh, an over-the-top scene now and then with swinging hatchets and rolling heads. And it's wonderful to have the, all those layers to play with. But you, you don't have any layers to play with if you just get right to the horseman shooting off machine guns. I mean, right. <laughs> what do you do? You 
Yeah, episode two, the horseman has a nuke now. (laughs) (laughs) The horse headless horseman with a suitcase bomb in the middle of downtown Boston. Jack Bowers got 24 hours to stop the headless horseman. You do not have anywhere to go after that. Headless horsemen with with dirty bombs. Just uh, it doesn't have a, a, a good ring to it. No, it, it, <laughs> it, it's it's disassociated from what we love about the original, which even the original is not really about a headless horseman. It's about a rivalry of three characters of Brahm and Ichabod and Katrina and who's going to win her hand. And then the horseman episode at the end is the climax. And even that is left open. Was it just Brahm? Is it just a character who cleverly got rid of a rival? I mean, there's no specific saying, yes, there is a monster in Washington Irving's original, but we want there to be a monster. Right. Once he started Halloween and that mood, now we want to at least have the ghost that one night of the year that rides and rises. Richard, when you and I first met, um, Rise, Headless, and Ride uh, had been out. Bridge of Bones had been out. And if I remember right, I think it was right around the time that you published General of the Dead. And you were uh, living and working in New York uh, and then making um, numerous trips uh, up to Sleepy Hollow as you kind of channeled the, the feeling of... Uh, and and the atmosphere of what you were writing, and and you really wanted to connect with the, with the Washington Irvingness of the original uh, story and the uh, original Jason Verse trilogy. When when you started book four, uh, Blood to Drink, you moved to Salem, and um, you know at. W- w- I, I remember talking to you around the time you were going to do that, and and you weren't exactly sure, you know, how long you would be there. Um, you just felt compelled to do it, and it, it kind of seems now that that you're a citizen of of Salem. Uh, what what did going to Salem uh, do for you uh, in in writing the next part of of this ongoing uh, story, and and how does being connected to that place open up the new possibilities for the, as the story continues? Well, I didn't know how long I was going to be up here. Uh, I figured <clears throat> the first three books took three years to write, um, and it was cheaper to just come up here for research instead of, um, uh, fortunately, I, I had remote work at that time, too. Um, but uh, I, I think the pandemic, kept me here longer than I expected because, uh, you know, just everything has changed in the past couple of years and, you know, talk about spooky. But, um, when I, when I got up to Salem, it was originally because, uh, it was such a long drive from New York up, up here. And I wanted to do the same thing I had done with Sleepy Hollow for Salem. Um, and peel back those layers. I mean, you start off with uh, a town known for its spookiness, but you know, 21st century, you're talking about you know a McDonald's and a Walgreens on this corner, and things that we take for granted as just kind of prosaic life. Um, and it takes work now to find that colonial Terrytown, that Ichabod's Woods. It takes work now to peel back the layers to see the site where the the hysterical girl started pointing fingers at the local women uh it 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 takes work to find out where the courthouse was we we just don't have this kind of history in front of us daily um as our ancestors did uh so when you want to write spooky about a real place it's it's tough. That's I think that's why we have so many horror stories because it's easier to project one of our neighbors in our world going cuckoo-bird and grabbing a butcher knife. It's just easier to see because that's what's in front of us. Um, we don't see uh, 
that kind of superstition. We don't see that kind of devotion to legends. Our legends now are the Incredible Hulk and Iron Man. We, we have so many uh, legends about place, about uh, local sites. So I came up here and um, I was surprised. One, one thing that does happen to you as a resident is you get used to a place in that prosaic way, which I, you know, sometimes I, I have to fight because when you're, when you're in a place as a tourist, you're, you're more interested in, oh, that's the place where the sailors used to be shanghaied down to the pier, given to the pirates. That's, that's something you do as a tourist. When, when you live in a place, you're like, darn, that's the place where I got shortchanged on that burrito, you know? <laughs> Becomes a different thing when you live someplace, and I love Salem. Uh, I'm glad I was in Salem when New York um, got so dangerous for a while um, from the pandemic, and you know who knows what have ha- what might have happened. Uh, fortunately, being a writer, you, you're kind of housebound as it is, um, so not interacting with a lot of people. But I, I, as I told you, Salem being a tourist town, we closed down. And uh, that's bad for research when you're when you're here to see the parades and and right. the, the craziness. But I, I do love the town. I, I have fallen in love with Salem. I, I didn't think that I would uh, because it, it's so strange. It, it is a town where people hanged their neighbors in a fit of superstition. And now, hundreds of years later, it is a carnival with, as I say, Harry Potter stores and um, <laughs> fried Oreos. I mean, they, they right now we have a carousel on the common. Uh, we have the food trucks lined up all around the, the Central Park, uh, selling everything from empanadas to fried Oreos. I mean, we've got the Witch Museum with crowds of people in front of it. Uh, we're deep into haunted happenings. Uh, we have... Witches giving tours in our woods, showing how to cultivate wild mushrooms. We have, you know, the Satanic Temple doing a high tea every afternoon. Um, they are sponsoring uh, the Salem Horror Fest to um, as a fundraiser for abortion clinics in Texas. Um, it it is a strange place when you try to associate it with with the story that began us as the witch city, there's a, there's a vast disconnect, a strange cultural thing has happened in this little corner of new England. So it's a year round Halloween town and a, a town of Wiccans and wand shops. It's, it's, it's a very strange place to me. So with the first trilogy um, being centered around the original Washington Irving story, um, and then when you shift to Salem in in book four, um, how does how does the story um, what what happens in the story that allows you to jump locations and to move um, the kind of the underlying story that that you're exploring to a new place, a new time, uh, new authors? Um, I guess what I'm asking is. Um, it, as Jason kind of revisits these times and places in in his you know unique way, um, what what can we expect from the rest of the series? Like um, when when you've accomplished what you want to in Salem, where do we go from there? Well, the most important thing for planning a series is the planning. Uh, is laying the seeds of where you want to go very early because i mean if you write a sleepy hollow trilogy you have the risen headless horseman you have the 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 ghosts the complications and you have the resolution and then where do you go um but very early i decided that i wanted jason crane to be ongoing um and I wanted to explore specifically in my mind three locations, Sleepy Hollow, uh, Salem, and then I wanted to get into the works of Edgar Allan Poe. And that seemed like an escalation to me from one ghost to witches to uh, a sense of a broader 
and almost uh, we will get into a little bit of slasher movie territory in the Poe books because there's so many things like uh, like the the pit and the pendulum and that kind right. of that kind of scare. So it gives you some place to go. And the in the planning stage, I decided um, a couple of things that would be key in, as I went to stories like the House of the Seven Gables um, in uh, Salem. So I looked at Hawthorne, and Hawthorne is all about a uh, a stolen fortune, and it's a bit of a treasure hunt, and you know what's hidden in the house, and um, there are two warring families, uh, the Pynchons and the Malls. And so in book one of the Jason Crane series, yes, he's a descendant of Ichabod, but at the reading of a will, we also find out that he's inherited a vast fortune. And we find out that his middle name is Pynchon. And we have already established uh, one of the other characters uh, named Valerie Mall. And so that's in the background of the first trilogy. As you're looking at it, um, you may not notice it. There's also uh, the love interest of Jason is Kate Usher. So giving us <laughs> a place to go in the Poe books. Right. Um, so then by the second book, Valerie is revealed to be a witch. Um, we start getting the sense of of prophecies of the Usher family. Uh, by the third book, we've wrapped up the Sleepy Hollow story, and you have to set up the move. Uh, so Kate's father is a politician running in Boston as a carpetbagger. And so when he wins, he becomes a senator. He is now Massachusetts bound, taking his daughter with him. And since she's the love interest of my hero, that gets my hero up to Boston. And it means his friends come along to have a fun summer in Salem. And it means that the people that work for Paul Usher are now bringing their kids into the story and, and uh, more characters get moved. And so the planning stage is really vital. Um, you can't make it up as you go along. You have to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to face this technical challenge uh, here in a few years, if I keep going. And so I want to give myself um, that hat trick of like, Oh, look, suddenly completely logically and without any kind of force forcing, I have moved a uh, 10 person core cast to Salem to deal with new stuff. Um, and then you get into uh, Jay, where did Jason's fortune come from? And it turns out that it came from the, the story of the house of the seven gables and it puts him in conflict with the malls who are the, the coven uh, that rules Salem, and it puts him in conflict with his friend Valerie, who's now on the opposing side of an old Hatfield and McCoy kind of kind of feud. And uh, so from here, we get into uh, the witch trial uh, stuff uh, relating to 1692, but what are the implications in my world? Uh, one of the things that's important in writing a series is to have some kind of overarching magic system that uh, that you're developing. Uh, and for for me, I, I discovered uh, what I call the great curse, uh, which is a simple rule that if any normal person discovers someone with a magical ability, they are cut out of the world to keep the knowledge spreading. So this, the the ghosts are activated. They take down that person, and through the attack, they are either killed and the knowledge eradicated, or that person is elevated to be one of the gifted themselves. And and having that as a a larger conceit of the series of an exiled race of of supernatural beings that stay hidden for our sake. Uh, that solves for me the questions of, you know, why doesn't Harry Potter go and uh, use his powers on the New York Stock Exchange? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, why, why are wizards hidden? You have to have some kind of reason. So for Jason, uh, we have 
the rail laid down in advance for the story to keep moving. And I know where it's going for Poe as well. So from a logistical standpoint, the deeper you dig into these uh, American legends and, and works of literature – and the and then the the farther you move this uh, the story that you're working on that that deeply connects to those, but moves to create a new um, legend of its own. Uh, how do you manage all of the information, the the uh, the historical information that you have to get right, and you have to um, you know constantly lay clues that will be revealed in later books and and you know later down the journey H- how do you manage all of that do you, have you devised some system that that allows you to um, quickly reference uh, you know pieces of information that you've pulled from or that you've written into the series how, how do you manage that well i i admit that i am lazy enough that i don't have a series bible i I literally do hold all the details in my head and I don't make outside references because when you're writing, you have to stay in the moment. Um, and there is no stopping in the middle of a scene and saying, okay, what did I set up again? Um, where are those notes? And half an hour later, you found out that, that Kate's eyes are blue and that she likes <laughs> And like, oh yeah, she likes hot chocolate. Okay, where was I in the scene? And suddenly you are out of the moment. So I I see the 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 usefulness of book Bibles, particularly when you're involved in genealogies and what year were people born in and that sort of thing. But um, I prefer to keep it in my head and just keep complete immersion when I'm, when I'm in the story. I listen to my audiobooks a lot for that. Um, I, I love my audiobooks. Eric Michael Summer was a, a, a find. Uh, he is a glorious narrator. I, I, I can't say enough wonderful things about him. Um, oh, he, he elevated already great books to legendary status with the audiobooks that no doubt. Yeah. It's just marvelous. And he, I I think of him as a collaborator and I like to, to challenge him and throw crazy stuff at him, (laughs) but listening to the audiobooks constantly uh, keeps things in my head. And uh, there are a lot of elements going on in the Jason series. You have the kids in the present and their relationships and their particular characters and all their contexts um you have to keep in mind um uh, you know one thing i don't like in series of fiction is that things don't continue as they would in real life um, if jason gets a scar in uh from the headless horseman's hatchet he's going to be looking at that scar for the rest of his life i mean that's something that comes up you know, in later books, he passes a mirror and he notices his hat, his hatchet neck, and remembers that adventure. And that's something that I find that, that that's missing in a lot of series fiction is just saying, okay, we're going to have to take every thread that's going on and treat it as it's done in real life. Um, and so. You know, one one kid is still holding the guilt of his murderous father, and one kid is dealing with uh, a a new marriage of his parents, and just not to gloss over anything. It's easy to say, okay, we're writing the Salem books now, so everything that happened in Sleepy Hollow, just forget it. We're rebooting. No, not for me. I want to write uh, a you know, complete series that's that's real, but there's a lot that you have to hold in your head. You have to see everybody as if you've known them, as if you've met them, as if you were there and you saw the whole thing happen. And if you see the whole thing happen as an author, you're like, oh yeah, the, the horseman was wearing red spurs that day, or he was, you know, uh, he threw the ax and hit the tree at the particular spot. If you've seen it, then you don't have to remember it because you've also lived it. And hopefully your readers have lived it too. So you can throw out references to things that they saw vividly and clearly, and and you don't have to remind them. 
Um, and that is, for me, the task of an author is to present a recreation of reality in the kind of vividness that is as if it actually happened to you. And if you can do that for a reader, you also do it for yourself and you don't need a lot of reference. Fantastic. Richard, uh, something that, that you and I have touched on uh, in the past, but I don't know that I've ever asked you uh, directly or uh, or uh, in this way. Um, you uh, grew up in the South, uh, Texas and Florida, I believe, where you spent a lot of time. Uh, now you live in the Northeast and are writing books, uh, you know, that that deal with the legends that that began there. How do you feel about yourself as a native Southerner living in the Northeast and and telling these sorts of stories? Or is that something that ever crosses your mind? Something that you know when I when I on the phone with family and they go, you know, uh, in a deep Republican state, you know, why are you in that hellhole? <laughs> Um, I, I moved to New York, uh, because I, I originally aspired to write for Broadway. And, uh, so I, I wrote a, a musical of the, the picture of Dorian Gray when I was 23 and it was done at Goodspeed Opera in Connecticut. And so the professional options were, were up here. I still love Texas. I, I still miss growing up on the beach in Florida. But um, I was a fan of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Halloween, even when, uh, you know, if I looked out the window, I'd see a, a jacuzzi and a, and a, a beach <laughs> palm tree <laughs> be in my house with my record player on listening to Thurl Ravencroft sing the Headless Horseman song. Um, so I, I, I've always loved uh, Spooky. And after I was in New York, um, there was that period of reconnecting to that element of childhood. And that what that's what took me to Sleepy Hollow and, and New England was that throwing that pipeline back to that childish childhood imagination. Um, and that brought me here. I don't really see a disconnect between being a Southerner and being a, a New Englander. I mean, we're a, a, a connected society now i i talk to my friends in texas as if they live next door and my friends in la and anywhere else um but i i it, it does bring a certain sensibility to my writing um I, I i wouldn't say that i'm you know any particular political stripe i'm more libertarian than anything but there is a, a certain you know sense of southern values that comes into my work i think in in certain ways and uh that just creates something uh, different from the next person on the bookstore shelf there's there's you know a combination there's an alchemy where you bring in where you grew up and who your your favorite grandparents were and and you know the things that you remember from childhood and you combine them with with suddenly you're in New England and you get a particular gumbo of, of life experiences that makes a taste that, that, you know, hopefully other people will read, but you know, in order to be different, sometimes you have to pick somebody up and transplant them in some place that they never expected they'd, they'd be, you know, pick up somebody from Alabama and drop them in Tokyo. And then you have a, a novel that somebody, you know, has probably never seen before. Uh, and I, you know, I like to bring, think that I've brought something new to uh, to the New England mood that maybe it's not of being a kid in those places. <laughs> For sure. Um, Richard, a while back, you launched um, a, a Patreon uh, account to uh, to take the future of the Jason verse, as, as you call it there, um, into the future and to keep um uh, you know a, a full head of steam going there and you're doing some really unique things with uh uh with the with the patreon page uh, what was what was the decision process like to to launch this and um and and tell us about how book uh 
book five is coming along and, and what you're doing with that that's that's so unique? Well, you know, Patreon is, uh, for those that don't know, is a, a, a website where readers can support their authors and also get extras and, and things uh, that they wouldn't get just from the books. And also you know, to have material that comes in in between books, which is important if you're a fan and you're curious and you want to get excited about things. So Patreon is first a way for me to give to fans of the book, you know, material uh, between stories and um, to give them updates on where the series is going. So that's where, that's how I approach it. I, I, I never sell fans. I don't think you should. If someone's a fan of your book and they're willing to talk about it, and th- those are the people that you give things to. But uh, with so it took me a long time to decide to uh, do a Patreon. But uh, practical necessity uh, as I say, I moved to Salem and then COVID came along and suddenly there was no place to pick up extra work when you needed it. Everything was closed. And so Patreon becomes vital, particularly now, particularly in 2021. You have authors all over the country that are in trouble. And as independent uh, authors, they're not going to be getting unemployment. They're not going to be getting um, any kind of support. Um, some of these uh, you know, programs that uh, step in, they just don't consider being an author an essential service. So I encourage everyone, not just my Patreon, because I, Lord knows I need the cash because I, I can't as I did in New York, go work for Morgan Stanley on the week on in the middle of the week and right on weekends. As I say, there's nothing within within distance of me, but Harry Potter stores and stuff now. So I would encourage everybody to think about the writers that you love as people that uh, you know they're not all super powerful with Netflix series. I mean, I, <laughs> right flick series of the Jason books set in Sleepy Hollow with, uh, you know, a few good effects and, and legitimate history. I would love it. And I need something. <laughs> to <laughs> too, so that would be great. But it, not just my Patreon, which incidentally is Richard Gleaves at Patreon. Um, but uh, everybody, if you love somebody's work, Consider that if you're flush right now, they might not be and um, reach out to them and support them. And at least for now, uh, because it's an important time to support your creatives as well, or else you might not have them when this is done. And so everybody, I really encourage you to do that. And and so for your supporters on Patreon, um, you're you're doing something really unique with the writing of a book five uh, tell us a little bit of, about what you uh, what you're doing and 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 how this experience is different for you yeah i'm i'm trying to throw chapters uh to readers as i write them uh so you know it, it it's kind of like getting back to dickens and the pickwick papers you know it, it's you know what's your weekly installment or your bi-weekly installment depending on how how uh, good I'm doing, um, but give your readers some chapters. Talk about um, you know the the process behind because I think people like to read your journals. They like to read your your notes. I mean, it depends on you know whether your fans are you know, rabid enough for it. But you know you have to uh, even the the things that you think no one was going to be interested in. You know today the trees first changed orange in Salem, you know, people want to know if they, if they love your work. And, um, I, I've tried to do, um, little 10 minute featurettes because fortunately the work that I did was, uh, video editing and animation. So uh, using those skill sets, I can, you know, take footage of Sleepy Hollow and demonstrate, you know, the, relationship of the book to the real town or you know tell stories about how it was written or some of the, like the things that we're talking about now you know so there's a lot of content you can add on your patreon that um may not be 
traditional author content. Um, I mean, you can do merchandise and that sort of stuff too. Uh, but it is vitally important, particularly now, to just get some monthly support to your artists um, who still have uh, rent to pay, who still have uh, bills, and who are working in an industry. And, and we all know that, uh, particularly in self-publishing, um, it can be feast or famine. And for a lot of people, it's, it, it's famine out there. So uh, again, I harp on it, but love your writers, look out for your writers, do for your writers um, in real world, world terms. Because when you buy a book that you love, maybe you, you know, pay 10 bucks, five bucks, 15 bucks, whatever it is on Amazon, that's a one-time purchase. Right. That does not feed your writer for the rest of the year he's writing. And and so I, I hate to think of it as, as charity. And I tell writers, don't treat it as charity. It is a venue to give your best fans more material. And for your best fans to, to show you that they are your best fans. Hundred percent, and and uh, for anyone interested, there's a link to Richard's Patreon in the show notes of this episode. Go click it today. Go sign up and uh, and be part of this uh, this new form of of world building is is one way to look at it. When you give us those glimpses uh, behind the scenes of what's going on, it really can add to the experience of enjoying the books when you get these these interesting views uh, behind things. It's way to get your cut chapters read as well (laughs) (laughs) but then put them on patreon right exactly uh so richard what what are you thinking book five where's your head uh you know at this part of the process and where are you taking us in in the next book uh house of the seven gables does not have a really iconic monster the way the legend of sleepy hollow does so um i had a a a great uh ghost in book four and now we're more or less into the history of the witch trials so for the rest of the salem arc there isn't that kind of literary link that i like um i i thought about you know uh the scarlet letter or or something like that but we're getting mostly into an alternate history of the witch trials now in my story uh there is a spell on the original witch judges that was supposed to be a, a a curse upon them that they die a thousand deaths but as a result they are endlessly resurrected and so have become people of extreme power on the international scale, these these men that we we think of as these these cruel torturers now find them place of themselves in the place of CEOs of great financial firms or embedded in politics and that sort of stuff. So now I have a risen witch from 1692 with revenge in mind, and we start internationalizing the story at this point as she begins to kick out the pillars of these large structures uh, that uh, constitute the appointed, who are the people who uh, watch out for the world to make sure it's not cursed, to make sure that some witch or some magical person is not caught on film, leading to ghost attacks uh, against everyone that believes in them because it could be an apocalypse if that happened globally. And by the time we get to Poe and we're talking about the rise of the Red Death and the the plague in the streets and everything, this will be an international story. So it grows from one kid and his grandma in a little rural cemetery in Sleepy Hollow to a a story that will be a, a global uh, oh, I guess for one of another of another term, a global supernatural pandemic going on by the end of it, and uh, my hero, you know, dead center. That uh, eventually we're saving the world. I love I, it. 
forward to it. It's it's just going to be the biggest writing challenge because again, I have to think about what it would be in the real world to have ghosts rising from everywhere, from Pere, you have Pere Lachaise and and Paris to Arlington National Cemetery to to uh, you know the ghosts of the Indian reservations all rising at once to take on the world. I can't wait. I and neither can we. I know you have scores of uh rabid fans waiting for the next book to come out and to see where uh you will take us next on this epic journey um the the jason verse is available in uh in kindle edition or uh paperbacks if you want to hold the book in your hand or or like me have a shelf uh, that you i'm sorry the audiobooks are my favorite. And I was getting to that in the the uh, my audible library has all four um, of the Jason Crane books and uh, you know this time of year we we uh, crank them back up and listen and uh, you know my whole family loves the series and uh, that's something I've been able to share with my my kids and my wife and and we just we love it. it's it's a great series for for all ages and uh, that's that's one thing that I really love about it um they're all, all four are available now you can go grab them uh book five in any idea richard when we'll see book five for Ho- publications hopefully next halloween it's been delayed by all the craziness in the world of course and yeah. it's hard to do research when the shops and stuff are closed but it's coming it's coming it's it's well on its way well, we, we have plenty to keep us busy until then. Um, Richard, uh, we're going to put links to your uh, Patreon in the uh, show notes of this episode. Is that the best place for people to to link up with you and uh, you know get connected with all that you're doing? Uh, I think so. Uh, also, um, keep you up to date at uh, Facebook at the Jason Crane series. Great. We'll link that as well. Richard, always fun uh, chatting and catching up. Uh, congratulations on all that you've done, and we look forward to what's coming up in the future. And congratulations on the success of Author Stories to you. Too. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Gleaves, the Jason Crane series. Midnight struck. The Sandman had come. A few faint notes drifted through the rooms of 417 Gorybrook the hollow wind testing the weatherproofing, the weak scritch of the persimmon tree against Zeph's window, and the drone of Hedwig's snoring. The old house shifted, creaked, and the shade of Agatha Van Brunt descended from the attic. Brahm? she called. The ghost paused, collecting herself on the stair. She passed a mirror, but the glass remained empty, reflecting only absence. Agatha would not have recognized herself anyway. She had been beautiful long ago, and still was in her own mind. Not a toothless and wizened specter. Not a blue chalk sketch of a hag half erased from the blackboard of night. She drifted into the master bedroom, disappeared into a shaft of moonbeams, and reappeared on the other side. She stood over Hedwig, listening to him snore. But Hedwig was not Brahm. She needed Brahm. She slipped through the floor into Zeph's bedroom. She stood over him for a long time, listening to the persimmon tree's weak coffin scratch on the window screen. Brahm? No, this was not Brahm. Not Brahm, her son. But she loved this boy. So much hidden potential. He reminded her of Dylan, her grandson. Dylan had slept in this room. Many, many times. But Dylan was dead, never to return. This boy, Zeph, was alive. So alive. Oh, would that he might remain so forever. Look at him. Who would consign such a handsome lad to the rot of death? Only a very cruel and blind god. Agatha brushed her spectral lips to Zeph's cheek. He stirred, scratched the spot, and rolled into his pillow. But Zeph was not Brahm. Where? Oh, Brahm is dead. She remembered now. Brahm is dead, and so are Hermanus, my husband, and Hans, my brother, and old Baltus Van Tassel, and Katrina. All dead. 
Only old Agatha remains, after a fashion, to trouble the world. Her sense of herself sharpened and returned to her. She searched the rooms for the crane boy. She sensed him. Yes, here was the boy, sleeping fitfully, holding his animal. She extended a hand as if to reach into Jason's chest and take his heart in her talons. The dog woke, sensing Agatha's presence, and growled. Growl till your voice cracks, cur. I could kill this child myself. I could possess the man or the boy. I could take the butcher knife from the drawer. I could stride through the night in strong male form and dissect this child at my whim. Something struck her. Something blasted her up and away from the boy. She collected her energies again and tried to re-enter but could not pass through the walls. When she found her voice, it came as hollow and cold as wind through a tomb. Who is here? Agatha whispered, and her tone might have withered grass. Show yourself. She waited with growing confusion and anxiety. She threw herself forward and battered the door like a tempest. Who is here? she cried. But no one answered. 